Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Ruskin. I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action. And welcome to another beautiful summer week from Wisconsin. I hope our panel, which is here, and we got our full panel here, had a great 4th of July weekend. That means Claire Zauke, our healthcare director, is with us. Claire, good to have you. Thank you. Good to be here. And Robert Craig, Executive Director of Citizen Action, is with us. Robert. Uh, greetings to both our digital and our radio audience. So, well, folks, uh, hope you all had a, a good holiday break. It's uh, it's nice to have three days off. Not everybody always gets three days off, but hopefully people got to spend some time with family. Um, it is uh, certainly nice uh, post for a lot of folks being vaccinated, being able to spend time again with family. Uh, later in the show, we are going to talk again about vaccinations. It's been a few weeks since we've actually discussed the topic, and we're going to talk more about it because um, uh, the president we know had a very uh, ambitious deadline of uh, July 1st to try to vaccinate 70% of the country, and we definitely fell short, but we're going to dive in a little bit later about where we are here in Wisconsin and why it's still super important, but we have to start with the state budget. Uh, it is super important. We spent last week spending a significant amount of time talking about it. Uh, the show was called Budget Blues because we pretty much expressed our, our, our frustration around uh, the budget that passed the legislature, including our frustration that maybe the Democrats don't, don't seem to be super well organized. And uh, here we are, uh, almost a week later, we're recording Wednesday, um, and we are waiting the governor's uh, movement on the budget. He has six days uh, to make a decision uh, whether to veto the entire budget or use a fairly strong line item veto. Um, Claire, there's been a lot of discussion this week around you know, will the governor veto? Uh, how, how will the governor potentially use line item veto? But also there's been a lot of discussion about the actual budget that passed and particular number of uh, the areas where it is extraordinarily uh, weak, uh, public education for one, but also healthcare. Um, I wanted to get any initial further thoughts you have now a week removed about the budget, but also um, before we recorded, I saw some quotes from you in, um, in the up north news about just absolutely bizarre comments uh, uh, Speaker Voss made last week during the budget around Badger Care and, and comments around Badger Care and just wanted to get your thoughts about that because it's super important given that Badger Care expansion is completely out of this uh, state budget. Claire? Yeah, that's accurate. Uh, that Badger Care expansion is completely out of the budget and um, it's not really possible for the governor to use line item vetoes, um, which are vetoes that remove specific um, sentences or parts of a sentence um, or numbers in, uh, in a line item to put Badgerker expansion back in that way. Um, unless, of course, he were to veto the entire budget and try to force Republicans back to the negotiating table um, to sort of start from scratch. Um, that said, um, well, you're getting me excited just talking about that, Claire. Don't get me excited. That's not likely, is it? <laughs> well, you know, it would be certainly a lot of work is what I'll say. Um, but I, you know, I, I'm choosing to be, 
I'm choosing to, to be as, as least amount of dour as possible, right? Um, and, and to be um, hopeful that, you know, maybe the governor will, will do something interesting with his vetoes. Um, the other things um, that he that he could do uh, would be to veto just parts of the budget. Um, so, for example, there are a massive amount of uh, mass transit cuts in the state budget that Republicans passed that would mostly affect Milwaukee and Madison, and the governor could use his veto powers to veto just the transit cuts. Um, we also talked on the podcast last week about how there is a huge um, income tax cut in the state budget that Republicans passed. Um, and specifically, it's an income tax cut that would benefit just the wealthiest people in our state overwhelmingly. Um, so for example, uh, more than half, I think it's 52% of tax filers in Wisconsin uh, make less than $40,000 a year. Um, but people who make less than $40,000 a year would get just 1.1% of the benefit of from the, these income tax cuts. So um, you can you can really see how, how these cuts would, um, would benefit the wealthy without uh, benefiting working and middle-class Wisconsinites. So the governor could use his veto powers. It would be tricky, but if you were creative, he could uh, use them to cut those income tax uh, cuts. The last thing I'll say is thank you for referencing that Up North News article. Christina Leffering from Up North News put out just this week a really uh, great piece on badger care expansion and um, why cutting it from the state budget is so awful. And one of the things that she highlighted in this article is a quote from Robin Voss that he gave on the floor last week during the budget deliberations, where he talks about an employee of his who is in the Badger Care expansion gap. And I honestly, I had to read this quote half a dozen times to see if I could figure out the point he was trying to make, because it feels like exactly the point we make when we're talking about why we should have Badger Care expansion. So this is Robin Voss quoted in Up North News talking about one of his employees. He says, she knows exactly how many hours she can work every month. And at the end of that time that she is able to work, she says, I'll come back next month. That's the person I think of all the time who is trapped in a life of poverty because they don't have the ability to earn a dollar more or they lose their entire benefit. He's literally talking about one of his own employees who he pays so poorly that she has to stop working at a certain point in the month so that she can keep her badger care health care plan. Because not only does he pay her poverty wages, but he offers health coverage that is so low quality and so expensive that it's better for her to earn less money and stay on badger care than for her to like take his employer coverage. Like he, he's literally telling us the story of somebody who could be lifted out of poverty and earn more money if we did badger care expansion. And there in a nutshell is the morality behind this budget. Robert, Wanted to get your thoughts uh, week removed on the state budget, but also wanted to get your thoughts on some of the comments that um, Matt Rothschild uh, made this week in calling similar to we have for the governor to veto this budget, particularly upsetting about just sort of 
a little bit about how there doesn't appear to be a, a unified democratic strategy. So just want to get any further thoughts you may have uh, on those areas. And we had certainly had discussions of that last week. Yes, given that seven Democrats voted for the budget between the two houses, it's a little hard to argue this is a terrible budget, even though it is, because they can run around saying it's a bipartisan budget, given the low standards of bipartisanship. I fail to see how voting for this protects you from the Republican propaganda onslaught to try to unseat you. It's not like they're going to let up or tell the truth about you. And quite frankly, uh, it may hurt you from the other side that you don't stand for anything. Uh, but having said that, but I understand a lot of conventional wisdom in Madison, I mean, the consultant class will whisper in their ear, they're somehow protecting themselves by voting for the budget. And there's concern that Governor Evers will sign the budget and therefore they don't have any backing, which they were undercut in 2019. It took everyone by surprise that Evers just signed the budget and declared victory and um, undercut all the member Democratic members of the legislature. So the governor does bear some responsibility for this. Uh, decay of democratic unity, but, and I only have a, a little bit left in the segment, let me say, pick up on the Badger Care expansion story and Robin Voss that Claire was just telling. We had been told for years that a lot of low-income folks like caregivers, like home care workers and child care workers, regularly turn down hours to stay under the poverty level so they can keep their health care. And now we know Robin Voss employs such a person, and it still doesn't occur to him that we should take all the extra money to expand Badger Care and add another 1.5 billion uh, to general state revenue, just for his political ideological reasons, and uh, and and quite frankly, mean-spirited nature, and that he just volunteers this on the floor of the uh, of the assembly during the budget final budget vote. Amazing how clueless this is, but amazing with gerrymandered districts how little it matters that they're not held accountable to public opinion since Badger Care expansion is wildly popular. And quite frankly, um, healthcare is one of the top issues. And that by insulating themselves in democracy, which is their goal and being a minority party, they don't have to answer to the public on this or even clearly to their own employees. And, and uh, Claire mentioned the co-pays and deductibles. There's also the matter of low-income folks near the margin uh, fighting with an insurance company to pay a claim because their business model is to deny claims and most people have the wherewithal to try to fight a giant corporate bureaucracy to get you to get it paid, independent of whether they can afford the co-paid deductible. And with that, we got to take a quick break here at the Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org talking about the state budget that passed the legislature last week. Governor Evers has six days, not including this uh, this past weekend, uh, Sunday, that is, uh, to sign it. So could be signed as early as late this week or first thing next weekend. Uh, we are talking about that budget one week removed. Um, Robert, wanted to give you one opportunity. I had to cut you off there at the break, but I uh, want to give each of you uh, one more opportunity to talk about key aspects of this budget. Robert, Okay, we have the strongest state coffers ever, uh, partly because of unexpected tax revenue. By the way, that you'll have unexpectedly low another time. So that's not like me that the state is flush forever. 
and all of the COVID relief provided with only Democratic votes in Congress and a Democratic president, nothing to do with this Republican uh, legislature. They're against it. In fact, they're busily working to uh, to try to investigate the 2020 election and be part of the Arizona conspiracy to overturn it. Their approach is to bring in Michael Gableman, by the way, the, for the former Supreme Court justice who turns out to be a complete insurrectionist as well. Uh, who, well, I guess we, we're not surprised by Justice Gableman on, on that score. But look at this budget. You have a, a flush budget. You have education, K-12 education, being wildly popular, people wanting investments in that over tax cuts. What do we get? Effective cuts in education, uh, austerity budget for education, and massive new tax cuts. So the opposite of what the public wants, because this is an illegitimate legislature that holds power by a gerrymander and wants to continue doing so. But then as far as the tax cut, and it was brought up previously how regressive it was in the last segment by Claire, uh, the governor could line in and veto that if he's unwilling to have a fight over the whole budget, though I think I said last time that I would pick a fight in order to set up the, that, that set up the fight for the uh, next election and not always be the adult in the room that wants to protect the public from even worse Republican behavior if they accept the old budget. That's the fear. But certainly you can deal with this tax giveaway uh, with a line item veto. And uh, Matt Rothschild is, is calling for that, but he's not. He's a wise man. But the, mostly the wise people who understand government on the progressive side are calling for at least that at bare minimum. And it is good politics. It has been shown nationally that the uh, Biden jobs plan is more popular if you run, roll back the Trump tax cuts and have corporations and the wealthy pay the, their fair share. Why? They've been paying less and less for decades at the behest of Republicans and moderate Democrats, and the public knows they're not paying their fair share. And in addition to that, who has been harmed by this economy, by the pandemic economy that we had, which was really a depression for working class people, not for uh, upper, upper middle and upper income people or corporations who, and, or billionaires who, who've made a killing in, 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 the, in the pandemic, or the recovery from the, the last great recession of 2008-2009, which has been very unequal, has left uh, lower working people the work behind everyone who does not have a college education and a job that, and, and, and a, what is quote unquote a very good living wage job. And in fact, that's been going for 40 years. So the people you need to help are the people at the bottom of the ladder. And look at them. It's reverse Robin Hood. They're going to help the people who are doing great in this economy, and they're going to starve education, starve health care, starve everything else. It is shocking how irresponsible this legislature is. But the, the, the cause of it all is a legislature that is completely unaccountable to public opinion because it has chosen its own districts. Claire. One of the things, so one of the things that I wanted to get your thoughts on again is is the education aspect of this budget. Um, we talked about last week that one of the reasons the governor is likely to sign this budget is they feel like that uh, all this education money is at risk, um, the, the the federal money. Well, I gotta say, the money that they're actually getting for a lot of districts, it's uh, really bad, right? Like some Madison's going to lose money, but even some districts that are seeing minor increases um, are already 
publicly complaining. Um, I'm looking at an article from the Journal Sentinel where I see the superintendent of the Slinger District uh, saying that that they're getting it at both ends and that this is really uh, not an, not a good budget and others being much more upfront and blasting it. Um, is there a is there a just sort of a general misreading of the public that might be going on here around what this current budget does around education and how the public might actually uh, really backfire on both Republicans and, and Democrats that are supporting this right now? Just your thoughts as a former school board member? Yes, I have thoughts. Uh, and I think there's two things to remember about uh, education funding and specifically the education funding in this state budget, uh, which is one, the state can give more money to school districts, but if they don't increase the uh, revenue or spending limits that are imposed by the state upon each school district, then it doesn't mean that more money gets sent to children. It just means that of the money going to classrooms and supporting the school districts, more of it is gonna come from the state and less of it will come from property taxes the school districts raise themselves or levy themselves, right? Um, which is functionally translates into just a property tax cut um, while also allowing legislators to make misleading statements like I'm putting more money into education. So that is the very high level thing to understand about Wisconsin education funding. The second thing to understand about this budget in particular, and I think this is where a lot of the acrimony is coming from, um, from school district administrators and school board members that, is, that are quoted, quoted in the Journal Sentinel article, is that um, a lot of the funding that is coming from the federal government, the special funding this year, are American Rescue Plan Act funds that are supposed to be used for COVID relief purposes and can't really be spent on absolutely anything the school district wants. So if districts are getting pretty much the same amount of money under their revenue limits or they're allowed to spend and raise the same amount of money, but a bunch of that money that they're getting from the state is earmarked for specific services, it means that they might actually have to cut money from other programs because like they just like don't have, they're getting the same amount of money, but more restrictions on how they can spend it. Um, so it, it's kind of a, a double whammy that puts school districts in uh, a crummy situation heading into this next school year. Well, and given that this is, I mean, this has always been one of the most important things that a state budget does. Education has always been one of the top issues in the budget. I'm just a little surprised. I think um, maybe I'm wrong uh, that that this is this budget's a uh, they're a little too clever times two, and that this that this is maybe a lot more unpopular back home than they think. I don't know. Maybe they're hearing some of this this week. Um, before we move on, any other final thoughts on the budget? Robert, you give you last word here. Oh, I think you can go to town on this budget, given the popularity of investing in education. But the Democrats have made that harder by having seven Democrats vote for it, and the governor's going to sign it most likely. So how do you make that firm distinction? And I hope the governor comes up with some messaging. I think he should say, not this is a great victory, which was 2019, but say he signs it in protest and that he's afraid of making it worse and losing all this federal money and they doing even worse damage 
if he because they won't even come back to do a new budget if he vetoes this one and we have to default to the 2019-2021 which will make the cuts even more drastic uh, but to say how bad this is in clear terms uh, that has to happen uh, even if the governor feels compelled as the responsible adult in the room to sign the budget in order to prevent worse damage being done by a party that's not interested in governing and doesn't ma- doesn't really care about what institutions it breaks. And uh, before we run to break, I will let our listeners know, I know we have mentioned, we've talked about the seven Democrats. Um, though we did mention uh, there's one Democrat we were very surprised, and that was Jeff Smith. Uh, Senator Smith has reached out to us. We are going to talk more with him. Um, he is the one person uh, based on his track record. We're very interested to hear you know, what he has to say um, and certainly uh, want to give him an audience. And maybe we'll see if he's interested in coming on the show and talking more from his perspective, because we, of course, want to uh, make sure that we hear from everyone. Uh, and we've certainly been very upfront about our position on the budget. But we appreciate the senator reaching out to us. Look forward to talking more with him. And we'll talk more about that later on the show. Uh, but we gotta we gotta go to a break here, uh, here at the Battleground, Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. Find set Citizen Action wi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground, Wisconsin. We have got to talk a little bit about COVID. Uh, brought it up a little bit at the beginning of the show. We have not actually probably talked about this in a, a number of weeks, um, and that is the vaccination rates. Um, And I I thought it was worth us checking in on this because uh, everyone knows July 4th, President Biden set this goal of 70%. And it was pretty apparent for the last month or so that we were not going to hit this. Um, They put out a number saying we hit like 67% nationally or something of one jab, I think. Um, That is a really best case scenario. And what I want to get both of your thoughts are, we can see this playing out in Wisconsin where we're at about 50%. uh, I think we're close to 50% with two. I know we're just over 50% with one, but it's really highly uneven in various parts of the state, various counties. We have some counties that are as low as like a third percent vaccinated. Obviously Dane County and Madison is significantly higher this is a real problem. We're not even close to herd immunity or anything uh, close that we would call safe. We are seeing in other countries over the last month, uh, these uh, variants and the particular variant that is, um, you know, raging around the country is certainly here now in America. Um, And, you know, we're pretty much moving around uh, this country like it is over. And it appears to be far from over. Claire, um, you're someone who we've really gone to go to on thinking about this, but I want to get both your opinions. But Claire, first, your thoughts on this and particularly these Wisconsin numbers, which are kind of disturbing for certain sections of the state. Indeed. And I think we can talk about geographic uh, sections of the state, but also uh, demographic sections of the state. And I'll take the former um, first. So uh, there are a wide range of, in the counties across uh, Wisconsin, uh, vaccination rates. So you can take a place like Door County, for example, where um, 73% and a half percent of people 18 and up have received um, 
at least one dose. And then you could go across the state at the same latitude um, to Clark County in central Wisconsin, where only 37 and a half percent of the adult population um, has uh, completed the vaccination uh, series. So, so really, it's a it's a huge disparity. I mean, that's a that's a forty percentage point uh, swing. So, when you look at a number that says, for example, fifty and a half percent of Wisconsinites have received at least one dose, you have to keep in mind that that is a statewide average and is not necessarily indicative of where you and your community are. So, when you're making decisions about your personal life and what you're going to do and where you're going to go. Um, make sure you're looking at what does your community's vaccination rate look like. Um, the second thing I'll say, um, addressing my former or my latter point about um, sort of demographic sections of uh, the state's population, um, and this is going to be no surprise to our listeners because I've been ring- ringing this bell um, for months now, um, is that there are disparities between um, how um, white Wisconsinites are getting vaccinated and how Wisconsinites of color are getting vaccinated. So uh, 47% of white Wisconsinites have received at least one dose of the vaccine, uh, a vaccine, whereas only 27% of black Wisconsinites and um, 30 about 37% of Hispanic Wisconsinites have received at least one dose of the vaccine. So Clearly, um, we need to be as a society and the state government, right, as people administering a lot of vaccines, need to be focusing on reaching not only um, folks who are vaccine hesitant because of where they live geographically, um, but also might be vaccine hesitant because of well, I guess a number of number of different reasons, right? But but also might just have trouble accessing them because of what their daily lives look like. Uh, Robert. Well, they fell short, the Biden administration, of their goal in the aggregate. Uh, but as Claire pointed out, and it's just us within Wisconsin, there's huge disparities. And the areas that are the most problematic tend to be the reddest areas. So this has to do with a vaccine denial and the propaganda campaign by the former disgraced president and by Fox News and things to the right of Fox News uh, to question the vaccine. Tucker Carlson on Fox News primetime being especially heinous. And people like Ron Johnson being especially heinous, who a couple weeks ago at his press conference with people talking about the side effects of the vaccine. Why isn't your press conferences about the side effects of all of the pharmaceuticals sold on primetime TV every day, every night, which has a horrendous list of all these drugs, horrendous list of side effects that are far more common than anything in COVID-19 vaccine when compared to what happens to you if you get COVID-19 itself. And then you have the variants taking off. The Delta variant is far more contagious. So there are big fears of massive increases in, um, in hospitalization. And we're already running out of ventilators or sending people, patients out of state in Missouri, one of the worst states, Missouri and Arkansas are the two worst states right now. So this is becoming, as some people are saying now, two Americas, and it's very dangerous. 
because it means that the, the virus keeps spreading, keeps uh, mutating, and eventually you may get things that get around the vaccine. We already know from an Israeli study that uh, it's not that the uh, Pfizer vaccine is, does not have the same efficacy. It's still uh, high uh, for the Delta variant, and a lot more people are getting it, but they're mostly protected from hospitalization. So you're still talking about uh, 92% effective from hospitalization. And, you know, you don't really want a chance. You don't want to take those odds of, of you know, one in 10, you're going, to be ho- you're going to be hospitalized and your odds of getting it are substantially higher. That's what the research is showing of getting it in the first place. So much higher asymptomatic than otherwise. So this is still dangerous. And then there's the grossness of rich countries like the U.S. and especially the U.S. hoarding all the vaccine after punting the whole uh, pandemic the first year and and killing hundreds of thousands of people, in effect, under Donald Trump, uh, from countries that want it desperately and can't get it as it ravages Africa and other poor countries, and they have no access to the vaccine. It is absolutely a moral outrage, and it's a risk to all of us. And the Biden administration is to be commended for taking the position that we should relax the property rights that we give, the monopolies we give from companies so they can, you can uh, produce the vaccine to scale in, 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 in lesser developed countries. But it's still not happening because we're not pushing it through the, w, the World Trade Organization or, or other like European countries are blocking. And uh, on top of that, while these countries don't have the delivery ability to deliver the vaccine, even if you give them the vaccine. So there needs to be a massive uh, billion, multi-billion dollar, trillion dollar investment in doing this. And it's not only the moral thing to do, uh, quite frankly, it's, it's in all of our self-interest as well, unless you want future pandemics and shutdowns next year and the following year. Before we had to break, uh, I, I, I hate to, Put a put an end to this conversation, but um, I want to make sure we're able to get in all our topics. And Robert, I wanted to give you an opportunity to let our listeners know again. You're going to be um, you've been this week going around and doing some media events around the uh, child tax credit. Can you please just remind our listeners why this child tax credit is so important and why we need to make sure others know about it? Because it's not fully really understood by a lot of the public. And by the time you hear Battleground, Wisconsin, uh, most of you will have done events in Madison, Milwaukee, and Appleton. I'm going to be in Milwaukee and Appleton, but Eau Claire is Friday morning at 10 a.m. If anyone hears this early Friday morning. Uh, but the child tax credit is one of the great progresses against poverty and, and for structural reform that we've achieved in at least a half a century. It cuts child poverty almost in half. And across groups, it benefits rural kids, who a number of them report tremendously, people of color, but because of the population densities, it benefits more white people than people of color, though they're disproportionately poor. But it only lasts a year. And so there's a campaign starting nationally. It's a national week of action starting at the end of this week and going to next week to have a campaign to make it permanent and citizen action with our partners in the End Child Poverty Coalition, Wisdom, Wisconsin Council of Churches and Kids Forward is promoting this strongly. We have other partners for these events like the Economic Security Project, uh, the Worker Center for, for Economic, for Racial Justice and Community Advocates Public Policy Institute. But this is, 
then the biggest blow against child poverty, which is a moral outrage, and therefore family poverty, because you have to help the whole family to help the kids, uh, that we've seen in multiple generations. And there's real push to hold on to it. There's also an income ta- income tax credit increase for childless adults as well that is critical to moving people out of poverty. Those should become permanent. And you'll be hearing a lot about this because they expire in 2022. But we need to act now in order to, in order to keep this going because certainly the marketplace is fine with child poverty as long as their bo- bottom line and Wall Street investors uh, get there, get the hindmost, so to speak. And with that, folks, we have got to take a break. You're listening to The Battleground Wisconsin, where Citizen Action. Welcome back to The Battleground Wisconsin. Claire, I wanted to let you educate our listeners about Ron Johnson. You may know him. He's our U.S. Senator, and he's uh, basically running uh, to the right, and nothing can be crazy enough. But one of the things that uh, Ron is known for is his uh, strong belief in science. Claire, there's a story this week about Ron Johnson again on climate change, which it seems to me is another reason why he ought to be removed. Uh, If any of our listeners are not good at picking up on sarcasm, which I don't want to assume everybody is, I want to make it very clear that Matt was being sarcastic. Senator Ron Johnson is not known for being a strong advocate of science, um, as is evidenced by the fact that he made some comments uh, basically uh, doubling down on being a climate change denier, not thinking it's a big issue. Um, and he um, he made these comments in June at a gathering of the Republican women of greater Wisconsin um, at a meeting in Wauwatosa. Uh, and he said, I don't know about you guys, but I think climate change is BS, except he didn't say BS. He said the word that if I said it on the radio, we would have to bleep out. And I don't want to make our producer, Brian, have to do that. Um, It's really um, alarming that he made these comments at the same time as we're seeing breaking news about the record level of um, heat um, that is hitting the west coast of the United States and Canada about the alarming number of people whose deaths in recent weeks have been attributed to those heat waves and the fact that those record um, heat levels and their associated deaths are just so clearly a result of climate change. Um, But again, this is the kind of thing that we have come to expect from this uh, waste of a Senate seat. Um, Oh, I shouldn't have said that. That was so harsh. Oh, Oh, yes. He's He's earned every every bit of it, Claire. It's, it was also noteworthy this week. Uh, this The hurricane we had this week is one of the earliest, I think, hurricanes in the season, which is not portending well for the kind of season we're going to have there. Um, Robert, oh, Claire, yes, one final thought. I, I just wanted to correct something that I said. So, so Senator Johnson has has said that he, in his own words, is not a climate change denier. He's a he's just not a climate change alarmist. And the point I'm trying oh. to make is that it is alarming. The number of deaths that we are seeing because of climate change are alarming. And what what is also alarming is that he's not alarmed. Um, so yeah. I don't want to be misquoted as saying that he's a climate change denier. He is just, just awful. 
Let, let me just say someone who's uh, had the privilege of living in the great Northwest. Uh, it is never that hot. It is it just, that is highly unusual. Uh, well, I appreciate you giving us our Ron Johnson update this week, Robert. Uh, we still have a bit of a segment and I wanted uh, an opportunity for you to talk about um, something that both broadly we see as a really uh, issue that the Republicans are playing up. And again, and this is uh uh, the whole issue of police, law and order, and uh, this topic has, there's new news out of Kenosha. Uh, our good friend Isaiah Holmes over at the Wisconsin Examiner had an article this week about where he got actual conversations that the Kenosha police were having during um, the uh, protests uh, for the Jacob Blake. And, uh, you know, Tell our listeners a little bit more about the details about this specifically, and then again, how this applies to what is clearly going to be a Republican strategy in next year's election to play into people's fears. Yeah, it's a little bit like the um, investigation that's finally going to get started of the January 6th insurrection, the beginning of solving the problem, is understanding a problem, getting to the bottom of it. Uh, and so Isaiah Holmes and Henry Redmond two good young reporters for the Wisconsin Gazette. Uh, They did an open records request and got a lot of the internal communications from the Kenosha Police Department uh, from last summer when there were major civil protests over the uh, shooting Jacob Blake in the back seven times uh, in in that coming a few weeks after the murder of George Floyd. And Remember, this is where I think everyone remembers. It's hard to forget that white militias came in and a and a, a, a militia teenager from Lake County, Illinois, murdered two peaceful protesters and shot a third who survived. Well, and there have been before we've seen various scenes of them seeming that is the police seeming to be very friendly with these militia members. Well, now their internal communications where they know they're there, they consider them friendly and uh, quite frankly, do not do not discourage them in any way from staying, do not enforce curfews, et cetera, et cetera. So it really shows a real problem in police departments, right? We know darn well that if armed black or brown people or left-wing people for that matter, were stand, came in with large weapons, how they would be treated if something like a modern Black Panther Party came in, right? And so we know what the problem is here, and that is the most heinous outright assassination killing of the whole of the whole outpouring of civil civil protest over the over racial justice and policing in 2020, and it came from right wingers. And police were part of it. How is that protecting us? And we know there are a lot of right-wing sympathies with police. A number of police officers, including active ones, participated in the January 6th Capitol insurrection. So at the one hand, you have that problem. But basically, the problem is this is going to take a long time to do structural reform. We've made very little progress. And protests, no matter how historic, do not change a structure. It's trench warfare. We need a movement that has staying power, that like the civil rights movement can work for decades on this, hopefully quicker, but for the long haul, they get all of the, at all the protections institutions like the police have. But meanwhile, Republicans are planning 
according to a number, let me put it this way, the pundits in D.C. are all abuzz about this, so they believe it's the case, are going to run in 2022 in the midterms to take back the Senate and the House and state legislative seats or hold them on the crime issue and the need for more policing and trying to uh, label all Democrats supporting defunding the police and defunding the police and the protests of 2020 being the cause of the upsurge in crime, not COVID-19 and depression-like conditions for the bottom 50% of the country economically. And this is a major threat because a number of Democrats, mainline Democrats, are already doing Me Too kind of stuff, very much like the 90s. Oh, we support the police too, and giving up on the level of reform we need, or blaming activists for injecting uh, defund the police in. Well, this was an activist slogan. If Democrats had a clear position on where they stood, different than that, they could run on that. But instead, the Republican propaganda machine, easy enough, can lay it at their doorstep, which is their fault, not any activist's fault who's not given, been given a clear roadmap from elected leaders. And so it just shows how you can get depressed about this and cynical. It actually shows what you'd expect, that any structural kind of system, like structural racism, like our mass incarceration police system, has a lot of public support that's built up the love for decades and has a lot of institutional support, a lot of layers of power that could be gotten at and require really sustained strategic movement that has staying power that builds something out of a protest movement like we had in 2020. So that is the big thing to be accomplished is that kind of movement. And it's both shocking and cynical, but it actually should motivate us to redouble our efforts to be involved in permanent grassroots groups that work on structural reform like Citizen Action of Wisconsin and other progressive groups that operate in that field and have staying power and are trying to build actual power to change Wisconsin and change America. And with that, we're going to have to start to wrap up the show. But before I do that, I want to let our listeners know, remind them that Isaiah Holmes is uh, part of a new podcast that we are producing here at Citizen Action called This Is Not That, the fourth edition of that podcast dropped this week. Really want to encourage you to give it a listen. It's a great show. Um, We'll put a link to that here in our podcast notes on the website. Also, want to let you know that we are uh, going to be having a number of events around the state called Mappy Hour. Uh, They're going to be in Hudson. That that one is uh, Thursday, July 8th. But then Appleton, Milwaukee, Wausau, Viroqua, um, in these events, you're going to get an opportunity to try and to draw and submit a community map uh, for the People's Map Commission. And this is the commission that uh, Governor Evers uh, has set out to try and make more public and more democratic uh, the redistricting process. So please, uh, we'll have links to all those events throughout July that we're going to be putting on around the state, in addition to working on maps you can learn about our deep canvas program and how we're doing deep canvas phone calls to voters about drawing fair maps. So folks, please get involved, be active participants in your democracy. Look on our website, find out more about the Mappy Hours coming up, get involved, join a Citizen Action organizing co-op. We'll have links to that also on the website. But with that, we got to wrap up this podcast. We want to thank our producer, Brian Wildridge, who makes it happen every week. We really, really appreciate it. We'll see you next week at the Battleground Wisconsin.